Hey everyone, welcome back to Practical Non-Toxic Living by Ruan. Today's episode is a revisited interview between Sophia and Dr. Jill Blakeway that was originally published in October 2020. I wanted to revisit it for this week and you'll hear why in a second, but first I just want to give you guys a brief introduction to the amazing woman that Dr. Jill Blakeway is. She is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine here in New York City. She founded the Unova Center in 1999 and currently acts as their clinic director. In everything she does, she seeks to find and provide a relationship between the ancient wisdom of Chinese medicine with modern conventional medicine. She's the co-author of Making Babies, a proven three-month program for maximum fertility, and has also written Sex Again, Recharging Your Libido, and in 2019, Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. About a month ago, Sophia gifted me a copy of Dr. Blakeway's book, Energy Medicine, and I just fell in love with it. My favorite part, which I believe they talk about a little bit in the interview, is the random, I want to say equation generator, but I'm probably going to get it wrong. It stands, the initials are R-E-G. Basically, the idea that this computer that automatically generates a value could be influenced based on the person's intention. So... This influence grew even stronger, like it was more statistically probable for the number to be influenced if there were a large number of people all putting their intention towards the same thing, which is so absolutely beautiful. And the implications of this are so exciting that, you know, a group of people really can change the world if we all put our minds to it. So I wanted to revisit this episode, not only because I just finished her book and I'm just like cannot get enough of her information, Um, but because here in March at Ruan Living, this month's intention is resetting and restoring our energy. Um, And we're constantly being bombarded with energy in the world. And we innately as human beings are electrical. We are constantly absorbing and transferring energy. So that's why electromagnetic frequencies or EMFs, which are emitted from our technology, can be so disruptive to our bodies down to the cellular level. Um, And I know this concept is like so daunting for a lot of people because it feels like, okay, like, but what am I supposed to do about it? Um, (laughs) And the answer is don't worry. We have some really easy, simple solutions to detox your home from being bombarded by these EMFs 24-7 while still living a modern, full life. Nobody's asking you to throw away your laptop or your iPhone. Um, (laughs) We just provide some realistic solutions to be able to coexist with this technology and with these EMFs and kind of protect ourselves, our homes, and our families from these EMFs whenever possible. We just had our first energy detox workshop in New York City on Saturday, but if you're not in New York or if you didn't come, um, you can still become a member of the Detox Academy, and we have a whole module dedicated to guiding you through an EMF detox for your own home. If you want more resources, our friends at Tech Wellness gave us a code for 20% off their level one EMF starter pack and their headphones. Um, so the code is Ruan at checkout. They're an awesome company as well. And next week, we actually have an interview with their founder, August Bryce coming out. So stay tuned for that because it's really interesting. Um, Okay, I hope you enjoy. And as always, please reach out to us. Tell us what you thought. If you have any questions, you can find us at Practical Non-Toxic Living and at Ruan Living on Instagram, or just send us an email at hello at ruanliving.com. And with that, here is Dr. Jill Blakeway. 
Hi, this is Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of A to Z of Detoxing, the ultimate guide to reducing our toxic exposures, and host of this Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. Welcome. Now, on with my conversation with Dr. Jill Blakeway. I ended up studying the electromagnetic fields from our technologies and how that might impact human health and development. And in continuing to seek the best science on it, it led me to develop a long list of questions that your book addressed. And I loved that you give a status overview of the current science on energy medicine. And after your book launch party, when I climbed into bed with your book, I'm fascinated with the universe within. My husband is fascinated with outer space, the universe above and beyond. And I was about to open the book and he looks at the cover and he goes, huh, interesting. There's really something about that now because they're learning now that subatomic particles, these tiny, tiny particles don't behave in the same way that bigger pieces of matter do. And I was just blown away by his comment. (laughs) And then your book proceeded to explain this further. I absolutely loved it. Thank you for writing it. Well, thank you. Thank you for reading it. And yes, that was part of it for me. I realized that scientists and healers and mystics were all actually talking about the same thing, particularly ancient medical traditions. And yet we weren't talking the same language. And so it's been a real passion of mine to bring us all together so that we can advance by pooling our knowledge. And that was really what this book was an attempt to do. How long did it take you to research and write the book? Well, I think I'd been on this journey for longer than I understood. And I was sort of writing the book and not writing the book for quite a few years. I always tell people the book wrote me. I didn't write it. I set off to explain me to me out of personal curiosity. People were telling me they could feel energy coming out of my hands and that it was helping them. And I think any responsible practitioner, I had the sort of questions that a thoughtful person would have, like how much of this is placebo? Who's doing the healing? Are they healing? in response to a prompt? Is something coming through me? Is something coming from me? And so I started to ask scientists to start with and then other healers and spiritual people, what is this energy that heals us? And I didn't really start to write the book until I was well in that process and I'd had quite a few adventures. And then HarperCollins contracted me to bring science and mystery together, which is something that I'm known for. My first book, Making Babies, I wrote with the doctor. I like to bring the two together and try and make sense of my world that way. So in the end, it only took me a year to write, but it was an extraordinary year. I was on the road. I spent six weeks in Japan, as you know from the book. I ended up in Greece on a super yacht. I was all over the place and I didn't quite know where I was going when I started that year, but the next step just kept opening up in front of me. And the result is this book, Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. You mentioned that patients would mention that they could feel energy from you. Was that a gift that you had from an early age? No. And in the book, I describe a somewhat traumatic childhood. And I do say that I think that people who have been frightened during their childhood are often nurture a sense of premonition. That's quite normal. We're walking on eggshells. 
we're looking to keep ourselves safe. And that's probably how that starts because I've met a lot of wounded healers. But I actually don't think I'm particularly special. I don't see myself as particularly gifted. I think we can all do this. And I give exercises throughout the book to help people develop their talent. I'm an acupuncturist and I think I developed my energetic skills because I cared about my patients a lot and I wanted to help them. And I did it quite naturally like a lot of acupuncturists do. And then I sort of reverse engineered it, as you know, in the book. And I submitted my body to science to find out what was going on in me. But I think we can all do this. And I think that if we think of ourselves as special, it can be a bit of a trap. I have a whole section on charlatans, as you know. One of the things I found was we expect that charlatans are going to be people who are doing absolutely nothing and charging a lot of money. I didn't meet many of those, but I did meet a certain amount of exploitative people who had some talent, but were using it to exploit other people. And that concerned me so much. I wrote a section in the book. I contacted the head of psychiatry and law at Harvard, Dr. Thomas Guttheil, who is a forensic psychiatrist, and he gave me some guidelines that turned out to be very useful to weed out those kind of healers. And one of the things he said to me, incidentally, was the only thing a practitioner should be getting from their job is their fee and the satisfaction of having done a good job. And I think the path to being exploitative is to believe that you're special and more special than other people, and then use that to have power over people. So my message is we can all do this. Yes, and many chapters in your book, if not all of them, have some exercises at the end of the chapter so people can start working their way to become more aware and in touch with their energy. Yes, and that was important to me. I taught my whole team at Unova to do this, and they can all do it. I believe we can all do this. And so I wanted to give that to people so that they had the power in their own hands. I think a lot of my audience is probably pretty unfamiliar with energy medicine. Would you speak more to the role that you think stagnation and blocked energy and even emotions have on illness or disease? Well, yes. In Chinese medicine, stagnation of energy is the root of a lot of disease and disorder, not all of it, but a lot of it, and certainly the root of a lot of pain. And I think most ancient cultures identified that, that there was some kind of stuckness. And actually, we need to go a little bit further back and say that most ancient cultures identified that we were both matter and energy. And science, as you know, also wrestles with the relationship between matter and energy. But in ancient cultures, matter was seen as your body and your energetic aspect called the pneuma in Greece or the breath in the Judeo-Christian tradition or prana in Ayurveda or qi in Chinese medicine is the bit that's energetic. And so stagnation in your energy field can make you sick. And in the book, in chapter two, I don't know whether you remember, I talked to a woman called Kieran Trace, who is a spiritual teacher and coach. She had an extraordinary experience. Her brain kind of malfunctioned and she started to see the space between things. She started to see the movement. We know the table that we're sitting in front of isn't actually solid, but we can't see the atoms moving and she started to see everything moving. And it gave her an understanding of the energy field that I think few people have. And she describes these areas of stagnation as pain bodies, that when we have an experience that we can't make sense of, we store that pain somewhere in our body and we don't go back there. And that's how it becomes stagnant because we're not flowing through that area of our body. 
And certainly for me, it's true that as an acupuncturist, I sometimes pop a needle in somewhere and the patient just bursts into tears spontaneously and says, I don't know why I'm crying, Jill. (laughs) And it's usually because memory is cellular. We now know that. And I footnoted that quite closely in the book, the science behind that. And I've hit an area of stuck emotion. And in the book, Kieran shows me how to move my own stagnant places, my own pain bodies. And I explain that to people. Please talk more about memory being cellular. Well, I think we think that memory is in our brains. But I quoted some studies in the book that are really interesting. They took rats and taught them how to go through a labyrinth to get food. And then poor rats, they cut away bits of their brain trying to take away that part of their memory. And they couldn't do it. It's hard to locate where memories are stored in the brain. And I talk to scientists who think that memories are stored in the energy field around our brain. As you know, there is an immeasurable energy field around the brain. Some people think that we're pulling our memories from that. And I think that may be true. But there is also now research that shows that we retain some memory in our cells. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I think that memory isn't just stored in the brain. Our brain's like a processor in many ways, but it's pulling from other parts of our body. And I think that's true for memory too. And that's why scientists can't find where in the brain our memories are stored. Does Chinese medicine or Eastern medicine have thoughts on the storage of memory and not memory necessarily being like cognitive memory, but maybe like emotional memory? So for example, recently, a lot of people I know have had lower back issues, almost paralyzing issues. And one common denominator is stress. And I just wondered if there were ancient or collective wisdom on certain parts of your body storing certain kinds of energy or memories. The Chinese medicine has quite a lot to say about that because it links different organs to different emotions. And so different emotions affect different organs. So for instance, anger and frustration affects the liver in Chinese medicine. And the way I think of it is that no two illnesses are really alike and probably no two back pains, if you know what I mean. So some will be purely structural and caused by a faulty chair (laughs) and poor position and hunching over a computer or slip disc due to an injury, lifting something heavy. And some will be more emotional and caused by stagnation and stress. And that isn't as woo as it sounds. If you think about how we tense up and how pressure cookery we get when we're really, really stressed, you can imagine that muscles become spasmy and then can pull out a vertebrae out of alignment, that kind of thing. So it's often hard to tease out what is the root cause of someone's pain, although that is kind of my job. And it's a bit I love, actually, is the detective work. And I always tell my clinic staff, my team at Unova, where I work, if you ask the patient, they often know. If you ask them, what do you think started this? It's kind of interesting because people are really smart and they do know it's just that nobody ever asks them and they don't feel that they can offer the information. So I often start with that, not just with pain, but with cancers and things like that. What do you think brought this on? And people often give me a very interesting answer. That's so interesting. So you'll hear, I love what you said earlier about an illness is sort of manifested for unique reasons per each individual. I was wondering even 
before as I was going through your book, I was wondering about resiliency because there's so much hope woven in throughout your book about the power to heal. And I'm just wondering, I know you believe everyone has the power to tap into their own healing, but do we have really unique potential? You talk a bit in the book about the Tao, this universal field of energy that is infinite in the balance it can offer. It made me wonder whether anybody actually has access. They do their work if they then can access and do tremendous healing at any stage of their life. I mean, of course you can't live forever and you can't undo some really serious things, but it just got me really curious about your thoughts about people's resiliency and opportunities to restore? Well, I think it depends. Again, every situation is unique. And I get this question a lot. And I'm careful when I answer it because I don't want people who get sick to think it's all their fault. And if only they wished hard enough and thought hard enough and were more positive or whatever it is that people tell people, they would get better. A lot of my cancer patients feel very guilty about getting cancer. And the truth is, Life is mysterious. And as you know from the book, I worked in a hospice. So I'm acutely aware that life ends and we all have to die of something. It's something we don't think about, but we do all decline and we do die. So I don't want to have a sort of Pollyanna-ish view of this and just say, yes, everybody can just heal themselves of anything because I don't think that's necessarily true. And it rather depends on what's going on. But I do think that bodies have an extraordinary capacity to heal given the right conditions. And often it's a combination of things. And if you remember in the book, in chapter nine, I talked to a young man called Madhu Anziani. And Madhu's story is fascinating. And I chose it for a chapter called You the Healer because he did heal himself, but he didn't heal himself completely on his own. He did get help from Western medicine. I thought it was important to pick a story like that. But what happened to Madhu is that he fell out of a dorm room window when he was in college and broke his neck. And his spinal cord was 99% severed. And he was in San Francisco. He was taken to UCSF. He was in a coma, an induced coma. He was operated on. And he was told that he would be a tetraplegic. And Madhu said to me, I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said it, it wasn't that I didn't know I could be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, Jill. I did, but I never let it permeate my being. And I tried to live in joy, which I think is an extraordinary thing. He was only 23 at the time for a young man who's just been told he's going to be a tetraplegic to do. And he's an extraordinary man. What Madhu did was he started to make noises, which is harder to do when you've got a spinal cord injury because your diaphragm doesn't move. And he realized he could feel those noises all over his body. And he had enough common sense to realize that must mean that he had some nervous system left or he wouldn't be able to feel the vibration. And he started to sing in tones, recite mantras and three months after being admitted to the hospital, walked out of the hospital. And he, to a certain extent, healed himself with vibration. And I think with a positive 
belief in his body's ability to heal, a sort of stubborn belief in his body's ability to heal. But he didn't do it alone. He had physical therapy, occupational therapy. He had excellent surgeons at UCSF is a very good hospital. He had a Reiki master. He had the love and support of his parents. He had a big community who were rooting for him. And so it's often hard in what looks like a miraculous recovery. It's often hard to tease out what worked. But I do believe that Part of what worked, a significant part of what worked, was Madhu's attitude to the situation he found himself in and his ability to create vibration through his energy field. Would you talk more about how sounds and vibrations can affect our health? Well, sound is just a wave like anything else, like light. And in the book, I examine all of them. I examine the energy that comes out of healers' hands and whether it's measurable. And sound is just another version of that. It is vibration that carries information. And a lot of the scientists I talked to didn't like to call this energy because it doesn't appear to dissipate over a distance, this information. And so they called it information. And sound, just like light, is just wave and a frequency. And so it has the capacity to heal. It has an extra element, though, which is that it creates vibration in the body. And I looked at sound. Incidentally, Madhu, who I just talked about, became a sound healer after all of this, after he recovered because he was so impressed by the power of sound. I also looked at mantras and certain types of mantras, certain sounds resonate in different parts of the brain, which I think is quite interesting. And they can show that in MRI now. So I thought that was interesting. But I also thought... What influences what parts of the brain a mantra will resonate with? The type of sound. So it's just a sound. It's not necessarily even the intention or meaning of the mantra. I don't think so. Although these mantras do have deep meaning and I don't want to dismiss the profound effect of mantras that have been said by hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people over hundreds of years at all. But it would appear from the research that certain consonants vibrate in a different way and affect the brain in different ways. And that was certainly the research I was looking at. In the research, if the mantras studied were in certain languages, like mostly Sanskrit, or does it matter what language the mantra is spoken in? Most of the studies have been done on Sanskrit mantras because they are the most well-known ones. Mm -hmm. And I think they lend themselves particularly to this kind of healing effect, vibratory effect. And they were probably designed to do just that. They were developed over hundreds and hundreds of years because of the effect they had on the body and the mind and the spirit. And so Sanskrit mantras seem to be particularly powerful. Yeah, I remember hearing that they were designed to move your mouth and tongue and to create sounds and vibrations to lull the mind. So I thought that was fascinating, but I never really came across any more information on that. Yes, well, they can now measure that. And it is the way you move your mouth and tongue and create resonance inside your mouth. But it does have a measurable effect on the brain. You talk about resonance in the book and you talk about the electromagnetic fields being further amplified when the brain is thinking about the heart or when they're more connected to each other, then the heart's electrical fields are stronger. Is that correct? It's almost correct. 
I started by actually looking at me and I did an EEG of my brain and an EKG of my heart when I was working. And I found that my brain and my heart go into resonance when I'm working. I taught myself to do that sort of unconsciously in order to help people. And to do that, I slow my brain down quite a lot. And then the patient's heart goes into resonance with mine. Resonance means goes at the same frequency. And that's thanks to something called mirror neurons. And at that point, I think the magic happens. I think information gets passed between us when we're resonating at the same frequency. But I think what you're referencing is that I started to look at how we affect each other based on that. And there are studies that show that an interviewer who is interviewing someone will register their heart waves in her brain waves. It's not that the heart waves become stronger. It's just that she'll pick them up. But she's more likely to pick them up, the interviewer, if the person she's interviewing has been perceived themselves to have been loved as a child. So that leads me to think that the person is putting out their half waves rather than the interviewer picking them up, if that makes sense. And if you felt loved and safe as a child, you put your heart waves out more strongly, I think. I looked at some really interesting research about that. The University of Connecticut, they put two people in separate MRIs in separate rooms. And when one thought healing thoughts about the other, their brainwave synced up which is very interesting because I think that actually is that feeling you have when someone you haven't thought about for years pops into your mind and then they text you, which happens. Doesn't that happen to all of us? We're picking each other up is what I realized. And then I began to really want to get this information out to people because we're affecting each other. In the book, I say we're in silent collaboration with each other. And I wanted people to know that because it's important to know that we are energetically affecting each other in ways that are measurable. That reminds me, in the book, I think it was chapter two, you talk more about quantum physics, explaining how at the subatomic level, how we can become entangled and act as one entity. Would you talk about that more? The research gives us glimpses of this. We do know that particles become entangled, which I think is what your husband was telling you about. At the quantum level, particles become entangled and no matter how far they're separated, they act as one. And in the book, I describe it like this. We are living in a field. In science, it's called the zero point field. In philosophy, we'd call it the Tao. But if you were on a beach and you saw two pebbles rolling in with the waves and rolling out again, if you didn't know the ocean was there, you'd think that was kind of spooky. And Einstein, he described it as spooky actions at a distance. And so I wondered, are we obeying the same quantum laws? Now, scientists say we're not because we're made up of billions of atoms and therefore we're more likely to obey statistical laws. But the question I ask myself is, what if they're wrong? What if we're just energy condensed like all other matter, which I think we are? And what if we can become entangled? And the people who seem to be doing the research that would suggest that are the engineering department at Princeton, who set up a special lab called the Pear Lab. 
And what they did was it started many, many years, decades ago now. The head of the engineering, the dean of engineering, Dr. Robert Jean, who has since died, but I did interview him. I did talk to him when I was writing this book. He was elderly at that point. He had a grad student who wanted to see if she could create a machine that could be affected by the human mind. And I don't think that Dr. Jean thought she had any hope of doing this, but he thought it would be an interesting project for an engineering grad student to do. So he supervised her project and she did. She created a machine that could be changed with the human mind. And from there, they began to gather data and they realized that this machine was changed more when there are more human minds with the same emotions and intentions. So they've taken this machine to everything from yoga retreats to the Trump inaugural It's called a random event generator, and it generates random numbers that become less random as we focus on it, particularly if we all focus on it or we all focus together. And they found that when we focus with love and compassion together, the machine starts to become less random, but also sadly when we focus with fear. So I believe we get entangled with our emotions through our intention and through our minds, and that we have to be careful what we succumb to because as you know love expands love is a very expansive energy and fear contracts and we're seeing a very sort of fearful world right now we're watching countries contract on the world stage and we're watching contraction happen and so it became very important to me to write about this material and this research that they'd done over many decades at Princeton yeah it's fascinating I often thought about the opportunity that parents have on their children. For example, if a mother actually stops viewing self-care as selfish, but realizes when she really takes care of her energy and presence and wellness and more, your book explains more how everyone around her, including her family, especially her family, can benefit. What was the name of the machine? The Random Event Generator, REGs for short. Yeah, that also makes me wonder about the power of prayer because it can result from the collective intention and result from love and care and compassion. I looked at prayer in this book and I didn't include many of the prayer studies. They're quite patchy in their outcomes. And I began to believe that the reason was, was a lot of prayer is somewhat limiting as it's asking for very specific things. And that, in my experience, doesn't work so well. And you'll notice from the book that when I was doing energy healing, if I started to want to direct it, it would get less powerful. So if I would say, please, please help this patient or something like that, it would dissipate. And that was because my ego was trying to control something that was much bigger than me. And if I opened up and let it flow through me, then it was much stronger. So I think the best prayer is probably thy will be done in the Christian tradition, but just opening up to source energy God, whatever, the Tao, the zero point field, the thing that is bigger than us, our higher power, whatever you want to call it, and allowing it to flow through you and trusting in its intelligence and not trying to limit it. Beautiful. Would you talk about the salamander eggs? I thought that was fascinating. I spent a lot of time looking at how the human energy field can be measured. Aspects of it get measured all the time. 
we've mentioned EEGs, which are measuring the energy field around the brain, and we've mentioned EKGs, which are measuring the energy field around the heart. And it's possible to measure energy fields around other organs now as well. But medicine hasn't given a lot of time or effort to looking at how fields interrelate with each other or whether there is a unified field. And that's just because medicine itself is very segmented. And so there isn't much benefit in conventional medicine from looking at the ways fields interrelate. In the book, I looked at different ways of measuring the energy field. And one of those was experiments on human salamander eggs. And the reason that that was so interesting and easy to do for scientists is because salamander eggs, you can see through them. (laughs) And so they're transparent. And so there are all these interesting studies, but there's one in particular where dye was injected into the energetic central axis of a salamander egg. And when the resulting salamander emerged, it was in fact the spine. In the book, I go into much more detail than I can hear about that. But I also looked at Kirillian photography and all the ways we measure fields in the body looking for evidence of a unified field. I think you wrote in the book that with the salamander egg, The technology was able to detect this sort of energetic outline of what the salamander would grow to be. Yes, the salamander has an energetic blueprint of a salamander. And by using that energetic blueprint and picking it up, they could work out where the spine of the salamander was going to be, even though it wasn't there at that stage. Amazing. And now I'm remembering an example you write about also with a leaf. My memory is foggy on this, but even after a leaf has been cut, like in half, there was some sort of photography that could still detect the missing half. Yes, the energetic imprint of the missing half is still there. And I looked at that and that led me to look at phantom limb pain which is also a phenomenon. And I did have a patient when I was a hospice practitioner with phantom limb pain and in desperation, I'm feeling rather stupid actually for doing it. I put the needles where his leg would have been on the bed (laughs) as an acupuncturist. And then he told me his pain had got better. And I didn't know whether that was placebo, which it could have been, do you know what I mean? Or had I affected the energy field of a leg that was no longer there? And as you probably remember in the book, I go to Yale to a conference of mostly Ivy League scientists who are willing to investigate unusual phenomena. And I met a lot of phantom limb researchers there who will tell you that there is an energy field that continues after the limb has been removed. And I think those leaf studies, leaves being rather easier to study, give us a glimpse of that. I know you can't explain that, but do you have thoughts on why that is? Yes, I think we contain an energetic blueprint for health and abundance. We're born with it and we affect it through life, but it doesn't go away. So we may lose bits of our matter, bits of the bit of us that are material, but we will continue to have the energy field that we came into this world with. Okay, so this is a really big question, but I have to ask. So then what do you think happens when we die? Wouldn't the energy blueprint still be around? Energy, as you know, doesn't dissipate, it just transforms. That's the first law of thermodynamics. 
I looked at this in the book, particularly in relation to hospice, because as you probably remember when you read the book, when I was working in hospice, I was able to feel very strong energy above the crown of people's heads as they were dying. And in fact, I got quite good at predicting how long people would take to die based on how strong that energy was. It got stronger as they headed towards death. So I believe we transform. This is the bit that in the book, I call it the little bit of mystery that is just outside of our reach. And it's why the book is called The Science and Mystery of Energy Healing. Because, of course, none of us actually know what the next step of this journey is or if we go on or if we come back. We don't know that. But I believe that we transform vibrationally as we become less material. And I base that on my own experience in hospice where I watch people become less of the earth. In Chinese medicine, we'd say their yin was declining, which is the bits of us that are material. But their yang became very free-floating. And although it wasn't strong in the conventional sense in the body, it was powerful. And I was amazed by how much I could affect people's pain, for instance, with acupuncture in a hospice setting, even if they were in extreme pain. And I think that's because their energy field was very active. And so acupuncture was a, a good modality to use with them which is why I was doing it in a hospice. But I believe that we transform vibrationally and that that is part of the mystery of what happens when we die. And again, I know this is a really big, deep question, but I'm so curious what you think the purpose of our life or the human race is. I mean, your book talks about how interconnected we are with all living beings. Yes. I mean, that is the big question, isn't it? I think at some point, all of us in our lives ask ourselves, why are we here? What is the point? What is it about? It's a hugely extraordinary mystery, I think, for all of us. And certainly I have wrestled with that. And I wouldn't begin to be an expert on the meaning of life, to be honest, except that I saw that we connect in ways that we don't understand. As you wind down a book, you start to sort of recap a bit. And I went to many of the scientists and healers that I'd interviewed, and I asked them, what is the energy that heals us? And one of the people I asked is someone we haven't spoken about yet, Dr. Bill Bengston at City University, but he did the most granular lab-based research on energy healing that I featured in the book. It was very scientifically coherent. It was not particularly woo, although his results were extraordinary. And I expected him to give me an answer that was all about particle and wave and frequency. And instead, he said, it's love, Jill. The energy that heals us is love. And I thought back to the patient's heart resonating with my heart in the treatment room when I go into internal resonance between my heart and my brain. And I realized that that really is love in its purest sense, not sexual love, not romantic love, but deep, compassionate connection. And so if I had to sort of hazard my own guess at this, I would say that we're here to love one another, just as Jesus said we were here to love one another. That love is meant not to be grasping and not to be exploitative, but to be deeply compassionate and empathic. And I think that's why we're here. We're here to learn that. I also think that we're here to experience duality. 
which is what makes that love so hard. And, and Neil Donald Walsh, who was a mentor of mine for many years and who I featured in the chapter on God in this book, says that we are here to experience duality. And the ancient Chinese echo that because they would say that out of the Tao, which is nothingness, comes yin and yang, which is a polarity. So I think we're here to have the full gamut of human experience. We're here to experience the light as well as the dark, the good as well as evil. And throughout it all, our exercise is exactly what Jesus, who I believe was a great spiritual teacher, just like the Buddha or any of the other great spiritual teachers said, love each other. The book mentions electromagnetic fields in it, providing an organizing or regulating effect. Yes. In Chinese medicine, we would say that your qi, your energy, is your body's intelligence. It's the bit of your body that if you have two extra drinks at dinner, knows how to detoxify. Or if you catch a cold, sparks your immune system to mount a response. Or if you cut yourself, it prompts your body to heal. And so that intelligence can be prompted. It can be prompted by suggestion. It can be prompted by acupuncture needles. It can be prompted by hands-on healing. It can be prompted by drugs, pharmaceuticals. It can be prompted by surgery. It can be prompted by all sorts of things. But your body has an ability to heal itself that we take for granted every single day. We stub our toe and it hurts, but it gets better <laughs> kind of thing in minor ways and in more major ways. And that, I think, is the responsibility of your energy field. It holds your blueprint for life and it is responsible for restoring what's called in biology homeostasis, for bringing you back into balance. Do you think our energy blueprint is dynamic in that we can expand it or contract it, or is it a bit predetermined? I think it's for the most part dynamic. I think we come in with some predetermined factors. In science, we would say that our genetics, in ancient Chinese medicine, they called that our jing, our prenatal essence. So we come in predisposed. I think in some Eastern religions, they would also call that your karma. We can influence it. We can influence it through very material things like how we eat and whether we exercise and what we eat and the ways we process stress. But it can also be influenced through the energy field. And to give you a really good example of this, there is a Japanese study that shows that Qigong masters, who are energy healers in the Chinese medicine tradition, hands-on energy healers, have a frequency that comes out of their hands that's a thousand times greater than the largest frequency in the human body normally, which is the heart. And it's very interesting because it's a particularly low frequency. Interestingly enough, at some of the best orthopedic hospitals in the country, that exact same frequency is used to restore broken bones. That's used electrically. It's if they pass electricity through broken bones, they heal. And it's the same frequency that comes out of the hands of Reiki masters and Qigong masters and people like that. So it's possible to affect the energetics with actual electricity, running electricity through a bone heals soft tissue and bone quicker. And it's also possible to do it manually by way of a healer. What are your thoughts on how we're affected by the energy fields from all our technologies now and electricity around us more than ever? 
that must be having an effect, I would have thought. And it may well depend on how healthy and resilient your body is. I think it's probably having a more of effect the more run down you are and the more depleted your chi is. And so the toxic cocktail we live in, the combination of toxic chemicals we're exposed to through food and through household cleaners and in our daily lives depletes us. And I think that makes us more susceptible to having our energy field affected by all the devices, all the Wi-Fi, all the pinging and, uh, <laughs> and that kind of thing that goes on. So I think it's having an effect. And I think that's really the cutting edge now of this kind of research. One takeaway from your work has been the importance around being with others who have good energy. And you can't get that remotely. I mean, you can get some of it through technology like Skype, or you can sometimes sense really positive energy, but it's so important that we continue to like have sit down dinners face to face and connect in person. I agree. One of the things I see here in New York is that people become more and more isolated because more and more they're working from home and they're freelancing and they get everything delivered and they're not communing. And I think we are communal people and that we heal each other and we affect each other positively and negatively when we're together. So I see that as a problem. I like the fact that acupuncture can't be delivered by Skype, that our patients have to come and see us and that we actually touch our patients. I think it's very important for them and for us. And I think we're seeing a great hunger, actually, as people start to work remotely. We see communal workspaces growing up and people working in coffee shops. And I think what they're looking for is that kind of energetic connection that you get with other people. I agree. I agree. It reminds me though, I didn't realize that energy healers could help a patient remotely. Yes, distance healing is possible. It's not something I do or I'm capable of doing actually, but that is why some of the scientists I talked to wanted to not call this energy because it doesn't dissipate over a distance. And I didn't go into it too much in the book because I had enough information for several books, to be honest. But I have experienced distance healing and I have experienced profoundly gifted distance healers. So that would be an example of time and space not being what we think they are at all. Time not being linear and space not being as separating as we believe it is. Amazing. Yeah, so my husband is super into science and outer space and science fiction. He makes me watch science fiction movies that I wouldn't otherwise watch. And it's amazing how as I try to study more the science behind things, including energy medicine, that what I'm learning is running parallel with what he's learning as he's focusing on outer space. That's what blew my mind when I wrote this book. As you know, I talk to physicists who will tell you that we're living in something that really is a bit like the movie, The Matrix, that, that we're living in a hologram that is being beamed from a 2D surface at the edge of the universe into 3D. It was all kind of mind-blowing for me. Part of the joy of writing this book, actually, was to talk to the scientists and make sense of the research they're doing. You've been an energy healer for many years before you wrote the book, as you said earlier. Yet, how were you changed by working on this book? 
Oh, this book changed me so much, so much. It was such a journey and everybody who worked on this book was changed. I had a researcher, a full-time researcher and a full-time editor working on this book at the same time. It was a big book, as you know, it's heavily footnoted because I wanted to give people the breadcrumbs to go and explore this area for themselves too. I think what I realized is that we have a responsibility to manage our own energy and that what we think does affect not just ourselves and our future, but other people too. And that what you put out into the universe creates a wave that means that the universe comes in to support you. And I developed a trust in the intelligence of the field around me that I did not have when I started the book. It's given me a peace, a belief that there is an intelligence greater than me, that if I open up to it, and I teach in the book how to open up to it, will guide me and will create more than I can possibly imagine. And so I have a faith in that, that I didn't when I set out in the book where I was trying to micromanage all areas of my life and was living to a certain extent in fear like we all do. And this book made me trust much more than I did before. And ironically, it was the science that made me trust (laughs) because the spiritual information I already knew, but it was a bit theoretical to me. But once I saw the studies of the REGs at Princeton and the way that love connects us and the way we affect each other, I began to have a great faith in something bigger than myself. That's Really, really fascinating to hear, and it reiterates my takeaway too, which is such a beautiful takeaway to trust and to love and really the importance and power in taking care of yourself, because then that reverberates. Yes, it does. We're affecting ourselves and our own energy fields, and then we're affecting the Tao. As I say in the book, every thought we take, every feeling we have causes a ripple of disturbance in the Tao that then creates the next step in our future. Thanks for listening. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, then please like it and share it. Until next time.